0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about how young people today are struggling to transition from adolescence to adulthood, but these think pieces are often heavy on blame and light on solutions. My guest today takes an understanding approach to the difficulties of growing up, as well as offers practical strategies for facilitating the process. His name is Mark McConville. He's a family clinical psychologist who spent decades working with young clients, and he's written a book on what he's found does and doesn't work in getting them to become more independent. It's called Failure to launch while your 20-something hasn't grown up and what to do about it. We begin our conversation with how Mark defines a failure to launch, when in his career he started to notice the issue in his young clients, and what factors are behind its prevalence today. He then explains the idea of emerging adulthood and how it's normal for it to take some time for a 20-something to start feeling like a grown-up. Mark and I then unpack the three tasks a young person must master to transition to adulthood, which includes the discussions of what prevents 20-somethings from taking on grown-up responsibilities, how parents need to shift from a supervisory role to a consultant role, the importance of getting going in the right direction, and why young adults should treat life like climbing a wall. We end our conversation with advice to parents on the best way to motivate their kids to tackle the task of growing up. There's plenty of insights for both young adults and their parents in this episode. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is launch. All right, Mark McConville, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So you are a clinical psychologist. You got a new book out, Failure to Launch, Why Your 20-something Hasn't Grown Up and What to Do About It. This is a book geared towards parents who have young adults who are having that hard time transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. But I think, I mean, it could be read by a young person who recognizes that they're having a problem. Before we get into the, the, the content of your book, let's talk about, let's do definitions first. How do you define in your practice and in the book, Failure to Launch?
1: Well, there's a, a stage of emerging adulthood as defined by the primary researchers in the field between ages between, say, 18 and 23 or 24, when you're, your real task is to move beyond the structured adult oversight of the world of high school, where, where uh, parents and adults kind of set the agenda. They, they created the curriculum, not only academically, but developmentally. And uh, you're stepping out beyond that. And uh, so now it falls on your shoulders to figure out where am I headed? And, you know, I'm not an adult yet, but I, I need to be doing something to launch myself in that direction. And the kids that, that I'm talking about, we sometimes re- think of them as 22 or 23 going on 16. Because the, the kind of behavior patterns that they're exhibiting would be normative for, say, a, a 16-year-old who's maybe wrestling a little bit with growing up. But at age 20, 22, 23, 24, they're really starting to appear as problematic.
0: And the failure to launch doesn't necessarily mean like, I mean, you could still be living with your parents and you're making that transition. It just basically means it's sort of like a, it's an attitude you're taking towards your life. You're taking responsibility for your own life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. It has really, uh, while a lot of these kids are living with parents because they're, they're not making any headway in self-support or certainly they're not ready for, financial support, but the fact that you're living with your parents doesn't in itself mean anything. You could be, you know, my son was living with us when he was in law school, and 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 that certainly meant launching. So it's more about what the kid is doing or not doing relative to kind of preparing uh, a trajectory for themselves. And if mom and dad's support can be a positive part of that, then that's great.
0: And when did you start noticing your practice an uptick in the number of young adults having this failure to launch?
1: I don't have perfect hindsight. I'm, I'm guessing it was around, uh, I look back at my journals because I've I've kept a professional journal for decades. And it was around the end of the 1990s that I began to get uh, a lot of these referrals, kids who were in their 20s and where the therapy work with them just felt so much more like working with an adolescent. And adolescents have been a specialty of mine since the beginning of my career. And, and, um, the what i learned is that you can do have terrific interesting insightful intriguing conversations with a 22 year old who's kind of stuck and if you don't get their parents involved in the process and start recruiting them as co-therapists the therapy really goes nowhere so i would say it was you know around 2000 would be where i would peg it
0: and what do you think is going on there? Like, what, what's going on to increase the number of young people having that hard time transitioning from adolescence to adulthood?
1: Well, there's, you know, we could probably write a sociological treatise on this. Some of the more obvious things are that the job market has changed dramatically in the last 50 years. The amount of education it takes for you to be a viable candidate for employment that could sustain you and has a future to it is so much different when when I graduated from high school I could have taken a bus cross town applied to Kodak for a job and as a an 18 year old I could have you know within 6 months saved enough money to put a down payment on a car and um, move out and get in a, you know those kinds of opportunities when we had a manufacturing culture they existed you could be independent and financially viable by the time I mean, kids would, would they would put down payments on houses in their early 20s, but today that's just it. Just we're in a an economy that's service oriented, that's uh, tech technology oriented, and so the preparation you need is so much greater. And that means tuition dollars, and that usually means mom and dad. So, and then when we just look at things like the cost of housing and the growth of real wages. Those have been disappointing trends for anyone that's at that point in life of, of trying to step toward the adult world.
0: And, and also you talk about, you know, parenting has changed as a consequence because parents realize that it's going to take a lot more to get their kids into adulthood. So parents are kind of stressing out about parenting uh, more yeah, than they did in the past. That's right.
1: The idea that you're done when they're 18, which which was a just a kind of understood Truth, uh, back in the day, it is just not the case anymore. If, if you're the parent of a someone who's graduating from high school, there are lots of ways that you remain involved. At the very least, as a financial support and as a consultant, as a sounding board. So, yeah, parenting—it's not over when they turn eighteen.
0: And, but you know, we talk about we talk about how parents can be a consultant. But some parents they do more than be a consultant. They actually just try to like make their kid, like, just do the stuff for their kid that they should probably be doing themselves.
1: Yeah. You know, p- parents today, I, I, I hear this a lot, And it's a, it's a very standard criticism of contemporary parenting, all these helicopter parents. And we hear nightmare stories of how college professors get emails from the parents of students. And I heard one story of the HR director of a large corporation hearing from a parent about, why didn't my daughter get promoted? And and those those kinds of anecdotes really make parents look look bad. But if you look at the bigger picture, there's something very different happening. This this generation of parents, and, and I'm gonna say broadly from the last 20 years to, to now, it, it's the most it's this this is the most supported generation of young people. If if for example, Brett, let's say you're a you're a 14-year-old with a learning disability. And so you don't find school very appealing, and you find it kind of cumbersome, and and the year happens to be 1975 or 1980, you are just generally regarded by everyone as kind of a pain in the neck, and you're going to quarrel with your teachers, your parents are going to fight with you, you, know, you may be thinking about dropping out of school, but if you're that 14-year-old today, you're going to be looked at much more sympathetically, you're going to be evaluated. People are going to identify that you've got a learning issue. They're going to set up a a very special and supportive academic path for you forward. Your parents are going to be much more sympathetic. So I could go on and on. Whether you're a a poor student or whether you're a a student athlete, the amount of support that issues from the adult world today is overwhelming. So there's a positive side to this phenomenon. We are producing better athletes. We are we're producing, I think academically the kids who come out of high school today, maybe they don't have the feet on the ground maturity for running their life, but but they are academically in in many cases very well prepared.
0: So there's a plus side as well as a minus side. Something you highlight in the book is about the the recent developments in developmental psychology that kind of gives yeah. us some insights about what's going on in a person as they transition from adolescence to adulthood. Because I think for most people, they think, okay, you're a teenager. And then after you're a teenager, you're an adult and you're an adult the rest of your life. But there's actually something in between that. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I know when I turned 21, I was naive enough to believe that I was um, supposed to be an adult. I internally certainly knew that I wasn't but I never would have admitted that to anyone. There's a psychologist named Jeffrey Arnett. And in 1999, he published really a landmark paper where he made the case kind of for the the jury of established developmental psychology professionals. He said, you know, there's a stage here that we haven't really identified and it's called emerging adulthood. And it starts at 18 and it ends at 30. So the notion we had before was that when you turn 21, and, and the benchmarks, you were you defined an adult by certain benchmarks, by getting married, by getting a full-time job, by having a child. And those are things, certainly in my era, and I'm probably older than you are, in my era, I had accomplished all those things by the time I was 23 years old. And so, like it or not, I was forced to do my best to behave like an adult. What Arnett did is, is he looked at today's 20-somethings. He has, he has given literally tens of thousands of questionnaires to kids from all, countries all over the world. And among the, the questions he puts to them is, do you feel like an adult? And he uses a five-point Likert scale. Uh, no, hardly at all. Well, some of the time, well, about half of the time, much of the time, most of the time. And what he found, I, and this is my favorite statistic Really, in all of behavioral science, it is not until 26 and a half years old that half of the people feel like an adult half of the time. And so he's made the case that it's no longer a question of hitting these benchmarks marriage, uh, childbirth. It's much more a subjective process, a beginning uh, of identity. I feel like an adult internally, and you adults out there in the world, you begin to regard me as an adult. And and so that the whole understanding of what it means to grow up has evolved pretty dramatically.
0: Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Cause I mean, I, I kind of experienced I experienced that too. I wasn't until, yeah, I think t- yeah, about 25, 26 that I finally felt like I am an adult. I'm doing adult things and I actually mm-hmm. feel like mean, that, that's sort of an interesting thing. that you could be doing adult things, but not feel like an adult subjectively. There could be a gap there.
1: Right. Or you're feeling like it in certain circumstances. In in the last chapter of my book, I write a letter to the 20 something and so if you're the parent reader you can print out that letter or contact me for a pdf version and put it in the hands of your 23 year old and one of the things i say is look don't think you're going to feel like an adult all the time that just doesn't happen and we don't want it to happen you know a a, a truly when i think of my my closest friends the people i really regard as grown-ups they all have a kind of playful childlike adolescent dimension to their personality that they can call on when they need to.
0: Yeah, every grown man is also still a 14-year-old boy.
1: Well, yeah. (laughs) In some way. Every time I do counseling with a distraught wife, I will say, you know, we're all really 14. (laughs) And um, which, you know, as long as you're not 14 all the time, you can get away with it.
0: Right. Oh, so what I love about your book, you know, you, you t- I think a lot of these books that are articles that talk about failure to launch, they typically talk about the problem, but they never offer, you know, a you know, suggestion of how you can, you know, sort of make that transition. And I love it because I think, I mean, as I was reading your, your book, I was like, man, this guy, I think he got it. Cause I mean, you've had been dealing with you know, thousands, hundreds of patients that have been going through this or clients. So you make the case that there are basically three tasks that an emerging adult has to six to master successfully transition into adulthood. Yes. Yeah. And the first one is becoming responsible. Um, and I think people think, okay, responsibility means like showing up on time, doing your, you know, going, getting a job, being financially independent, but is there more to responsibility than that?
1: Oh, way more. And let me tell you how I, how I came up with these three tasks because I'm a, I'm not a researcher. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a, I'm a country doctor, so to speak. and, and after and i have my entire career i have kept this this journal of where i would just try to describe the perplexing things that i'm in, encounter every day with my clients with myself uh, trying to find language and understanding and explanation and and the question i begin to ask myself is what are the psychotherapy themes that keep coming up with these struggling 20 somethings and one of them is there's this, what seems on the surface, a very peculiar avoidance, sometimes almost a phobic avoidance of doing very simple administrative tasks. Like, um, I had a, a mom and a 19-year-old in my office about, this is about two years ago, and she is their, their quarrel is, she has said to him, you have to call the dentist's office to reschedule your appointment because it conflicts with your work schedule. And this kid digs it. He will not do it. And I have run into that kind of curious resistance over and over and over again. And when, as a therapist, I succeed in peeling back the layers of the onion and we get to talking about what is that doctor's appointment? What's that phone call all about? What comes out is I'm, I'm afraid they're not going to take me seriously. That I'm afraid the receptionist is going to yell at me. If I, that's the fourteen-year-old boy right there. I'm I'm afraid, and it's this. So I avoid doing these simple mechanical, administrative responsibilities that adults have always managed my whole life. They've, my mom has made all my doctor's appointments. They reminded me when I had to be here or had to be there. And now, all of a sudden, I have to take that on myself. And it's not as I as I point out to to the the mom. It's not that your son. Doesn't know how to make a phone call. He knows how to make a phone call. What he doesn't know how to do is to make one as an adult. And so, what's underlying in that whole responsibility issue is, I'm passing myself off as an adult, and you know, I don't really feel like an adult. I'm, am I'm, I'm faking it, and I'm afraid I'm going to be found out.
0: All right. So, so mean, that's kind of so the first one's responsibility. The second task is relational. And it sounds like that relational responsibility are kind of working together. Like young people have a hard time relating to other adults as adults. And so consequently, they fail to do things like call the receptionists at the dentist's office.
1: Right. Yeah. And the, and the, the thing about relational, I, I know a lot of having studied adolescence, I've written, published a lot about adolescent development. The social task of adolescence is to fit in. It's to kind of find my place. Am I one of the cool kids? Am I one of the nerds? Am I one of the jocks? But I need to find a place that feels relatively secure. And and the thing is, when you leave high school, that's not enough. That kind of knowing my place is insufficient. And I have had conversations literally hundreds of times with kids who are getting to the end of high school, and they're saying, i can't find anyone in my school to have a real conversation with meaning conversations that have more of a relational intimacy quality so when when you get when you get into that next stage you need help you you need friends that are going through the same thing someone that can say oh my god yes that sucks i didn't i had trouble with that too uh, i hate it when my mother asked me to call the, the dentist's office right and you also need you need to find people that know more stuff than you do and so that they can kind of coach you when you're a a freshman in college and some upperclassman says don't take that professor you'll regret it or you know think twice before you sign up for 8 a.m classes then you've got someone that's doing just this little bit of mentoring that helps you to find your way in the world and helps you to build confidence so you know that's when I say becoming more relational it's developing relationships that in some way are instrumental to my my own personal
0: process of growing up. Uh, let's go back a little bit to the, the responsibility issue cuz like, so okay so it's the, these kids the reason why they don't take responsibility is cuz they, they they question whether they're capable of doing it. And like as you said sometimes they're capable of doing it. They can make a phone call. But the thing that holds them back is will I be taken seriously? So how do you close that gap? Like how do you help your clients overcome the sense of I don't know, embarrassment that you know yeah. some, someone's shame. not going to take them. Yeah, shame that they're not going to be taken seriously as an adult.
1: Right. Well, the, the first thing I did, because they almost always singularly think that this is something wrong with them. And so it's a secret. They won't acknowledge it. I'm thinking of a kid who um, his dad took his car away because their, their deal was, you can have a car as long as you're at college because he, he lived about 30 miles from the school. He could drive back and forth. And the dad said, look, you flunked out. You know, the car's gone. He had an apartment here in Cleveland on Cedar Road, right down there, about two miles from a brand new, massive shopping center. And the dad said, they're hiring. They're just opening up. You'll take the bus back and forth to work. Well, this kid, you'd think that the father asked him to jump off a cliff you know, into a, a raging sea. And I watched them go back and forth in the office. And I finally excused the dad. I said, would you wait in the waiting room for us? And I sat with the kid one-on-one. I looked at him. I gave him kind of this uh, this little twinkle in my eye smile. And I said, you don't know how to take a bus, do you? And he just had one of these, like like he'd been caught, you know? And I said, no, really. Do you pay when you get on or do you pay when you get off? He had no idea. I said, how about this? Next Saturday, your dad's going to drive in to your apartment The two of you are going to take take the bus, go have breakfast at one of the new restaurants, and take the bus back. It's the first thing I have to do as a therapist is de-shame the whole issue. Because I want to tell him, I don't know whether I have to pay when I get on or I have to pay when I get off. And anytime I have to take the rapid train into downtown Cleveland – I stop and ask my wife, <laughs> "How much is the fare? When do, I, when do I have to do it?" If you can, if you understand that other people share the same uncertainty, you begin to feel less freakish about it. So that's I try to normalize it, and I try to get someone to instruct them. The kid with the um, who wouldn't call the dentist office. I had the mom. I just said, "Mom, would you call the dentist office right here on speakerphone and just reschedule the appointment?" Which she did. And the kid just kind of listened and said, Oh, yeah, okay, I could do that. So de shaming it, giving some modeling, showing how it's done,
0: that that usually helps kids to move forward. And what any insights or advice on parents who, you know, maybe they don't have a twenty something yet, but maybe they don't want to have a twenty something that has that sort of issue. Like what can what can parents do sort of proactively when they're yes. teenagers to prevent that?
1: Well, and on one um, radio show when I was being interviewed and they had call in, a uh, dad called in and said, you know, I'm finding this all very interesting. What can I do with my three-year-old? <laughs> and I kind of scratched my head and I thought, well, what can you do with a three-year-old? I said, well, you can you can go into the playroom and you can sit down on the floor and say, come on, honey, we are going to pick up these toys together. You can create this, this these little loops of accountability that that you you are um, you have a job, you're part of this family. And kids who have that, and some parents do it so skillfully, they're not just hounding their kids about chores. They're presenting it more as like we we need your help around here. We're all part of this. The model I use is kids that grow up in farming communities because those parents are never quarreling with their kids about responsibilities. Because the kid views responsibility as essential to the family functioning, to the community functioning. And so it's a little hard to, harder to do that if you live in suburbia and you don't have a chicken coop in the backyard where the eggs have to be collected. But it is a kind of attitude that parents can have about recruiting their kids for being responsible for themselves. So that, that's a big part of it. And you certainly, you know, I, I see it, in fact... As I have, this book has gotten out and I've heard from parents, I'm, I'm hearing them say, oh my God, I'm working on that issue with my 12-year-old. <laughs> you know, how, how do we get her to clean up after herself? How do we get her to monitor her own homework?
0: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions, and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So yeah, it's, think, it's thinking about it. So going back to that idea of the task of becoming more relational, as you said, adolescence, you're basically focused on your peers, whether you fit in, whether they're fun to hang out with. But as kids get older, at the end of adolescence, they're looking for more meaningful relationships. And this requires and it's like i think i remember growing when i was in that age like 18 you know early 20s i thought it was really weird that transition to like working with adults as other adults that that, that's really hard because like you know at one point you're always like okay they're the authority figure if you're you know if they're above 18 i got to listen to this person once you're 18 they start treating you completely different they treat you like another adult and that's it can be weird
1: uh, it can be weird, but it's also very affirming. I, I'm like you. I remember the jobs that I had during my college years. I, sort of hard labor jobs, and I had a year, uh, a summer working at a one of the old style state mental hospitals, and I was doing something that mattered to the organization. And and sometimes when you're young, you have to prove yourself a little bit. You know, are you just a a college, you know, punk, (laughs) or no, I'm not. I'm actually a hard worker. But getting being treated that way as somehow um, you're doing making an important contribution to the labor site or or the kid who's working in a grocery store and and realizes they're really counting on him to keep the fruits and vegetables restocked. That's a transformative kind of experience. And it's not unusual for a parent, you know, a parent will run into say a parent of a high school student runs into their kid's boss. And and let's say the kid works at a grocery store and, and the boss says, Oh my God, we love having your son. He is, he's so helpful. And he's so, and the parent just kind of cocks their head and says, "Wait, wait, are you, are you sure? I mean, my son is Johnny Jones. Yeah. Johnny Jones. He's terrific. And the kid is literally has a different experience of self when he finds himself taken seriously And providing an essential function in the adult world, whereas at home, it all feels more aggressive. You know, you're making me do these chores. You know, it's not my turn. My, My brother should have been emptying the dishwasher. Why are you making me do it?
0: And part of the relational development that needs to happen to enter adulthood seems to be shifting from having your parents and other adults solve your problems and tell you what to do, to seeing them more as consultants who you can still look to for advice if you need it. But the relationship becomes less vertical and more horizontal.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have a a young guy that he's just just graduating now from, from high school, got admitted to I think four or five really wonderful universities and the parents who were sort of extraordinarily successful business people, they announced to him now, not recently, we have, we've solved this problem, but, but they announced to him back in September, you are going to a business school. And if you're not going to a business school, we're not paying for it. Now that is, that's the kind of parenting that is appropriate up to about age 12, right? I'm not gonna let you make a decision that I perceive to be the wrong decision or a destructive decision, but at age 18, that's preposterous to be, I am going to be your supervisor and make decisions for you as if you were a child. And so what that, I worked with the parents and what we got them to do was to shift from, from operating as supervisors to operating as consultants. And in the consultant mode, they were able to say things like, well, you might want to think about business school because you know you're awfully bright, you really have a mind for it. And um, you did really well in your high school economics class. And we just think, we just think you'd have a very bright future in it. But you know which school you decide and what major you decide is really up to you. So in that sense, they acted as they gave an opinion but they conceded that the decision-making power lay on the side of their kid. And that's what I mean by being a consultant. I, I consult at several schools. I have lots to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm full of opinions, but I have zero power. And I don't volunteer those opinions unless somebody asks, them, asks me for them.
0: That's what a consultant is. Right. And I imagine, I mean, part of that, being a consultant, the parent has to realize they might their kid might make a a decision they think is wrong or just dumb, or it is a dumb decision, uh-huh. and they have to be okay with that. Yes, they, they really have to. And in fact, it,
1: it paradoxically it increases their influence over their their child. A, 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 just a classic textbook example. I had a family with a 24 year old who lived at home. Now he really didn't present problems. He wasn't very ambitious. This was a parents were were educated and successful. He had a blue collar job but he handled it faithfully. He went to work. He got his paycheck. He didn't cause anyone any trouble, but he was a marijuana smoker. Not that unusual for a 24-year-old in today's day and age. And the dad was, was um, he was like a dad out of the 1950s. Over my dead body, will you be a marijuana smoker? And they had gone round and round and round, and that's what brought them in to see me. Was the conflict over the pot smoking, and what this kid? It was a it was a tug of war. They'd come home and walk up the steps, and they would smell the pot wafting down from the third floor. And I finally it took me a long time to persuade the dad. I said, "Look, I have some very scientifically based concerns and reservations about young people smoking marijuana. The research actually is much more concerned about pre eighteen year olds." Not so much about post-18-year-olds. But I said, you know, at 24, like it or not, he really, that's his business, whether he chooses to smoke pot. And and dad didn't like hearing that, but eventually conceded that that made sense. I said, on the other hand, whether someone smokes pot in your house, that's completely your business. So the dad kind of rechanged his approach. He went to the kid. And said, look, you know how I feel about pot. I think it's a terrible decision, blah, blah, blah. I gave his whole kind of, you know, reefer madness kind of uh, uh, commentary on it, but then ended with, but it's your decision to make, and I am going to stop fighting with you about it and stop pounding you about it. However, under no circumstances do I want you smoking pot under my roof and that kid's behavior changed instantaneously because he was being approached now as an adult rather than as a, a junior as a, a teenager or a child and 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 the kid who was i would see him individually he, he didn't like it but he saw it as a reasonable set of conditions so that's the that's what shifting into a consultant mode is you may make decisions i don't really think are good but i'm going to recognize your right to make them.
0: So the final task is becoming relevant. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, that's that's the hardest one to define. But as a therapist, in a, in a way, it was the easiest one to register. When I would be talking with a, a, a young person, I had a sense of they're moving towards something. They are interested in having a future. They weren't, they didn't have their head in the sand. They weren't, you know, I can think of the kid who's, living in an apartment with uh, four other guys who are high school graduates, and they are all playing Xbox about 12 hours a day and living off the family dole. Now, those young folks are not heading anywhere. And their notion of future is, you know, what are we going to do tomorrow? Call of Duty or Fortnite? That's their idea of preparing for the future. But when you're talking with someone who is, they really, they're engaged in some kind of activity. School is the most obvious one. The kid who is, who's been out of high school for a year and is saying, I really want to look at what, what they got have up at community college. You know, I've been thinking about this or that or the other thing. That's that you know that kid has a sense of the future. He doesn't know exactly where he's going to end up. The difference between a 19-year-old that tells me he and his band are going to make it big, and that's the extent of his future planning, versus the 19-year-old who tells me the same thing, but he's also enrolled in a program at the community college for learning sound technology for the recording business. Now, that's a kid that's, you know, I hope his band makes it. But he's also doing something that says, I know there's a a wider future, and I've got to do something to prepare for it. That's that, you know, my word of relevance is I, I get that I that there's a space for me somewhere in the there's a parking space in the adult world. I don't know what it is. I don't know exactly where I'm headed, but I'm working in that direction. And when when I have a kid in my office who doesn't have that where there is this kind of sometimes very explicit, sometimes implicit sense of despair, like like I want time to stop. I'm just I'm just doing the thing I'm doing to bide time and to avoid having to do anything that's you know that's really challenging or that carries me into the future. It's having a sense of direction, right? That's, that's really what relevance is. I have a sense of a direction forward. I may not know where I'm going to end up. But I have a direction.
0: Yeah. And I mean, over the years, we've gotten a lot of, I've gotten a lot of letters from young men who are like 18 in their early 20s. And they say like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. And as a consequence, they like don't do anything because they think they had to have like this perfect plan. Yeah, you got it. You don't need that. I, I, my typical advice is like, man, just get started with something. And as yeah. you get going, you'll notice things, you know, opportunities start opening up.
1: Yeah. You're you're talking about what I call a sense of direction. And that of the, I I talked about how kids think they have to do it on their own. The other theme that comes up probably 75% of the time is just what you said. I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm 21 years old, and I don't know what I'm gonna do for my life. And the interpretation that kid makes is I'm somehow behind the pack and I'm screwed. And I point out to them, there, there's a wonderful piece of research where where someone asked people who were in their 40s and 50s about their work life and one of the questions was it's a sort of true, true agree or disagree and the question was I love what I do I can't imagine doing anything else for a living and it turns out only about 15% of the adult population will endorse that item so it's it's a small, group. And what the researcher did was singled out those people and then interviewed them to kind of backtrack. So how did you find this thing, this niche that feels so perfect for you? Turns out that the the center of the bell curve for when people found that path is between ages 28 and 30. And and most so these kids who are thinking I'm 22 and I don't know what I'm going to do for a lifelong career, they're just laboring under a, a very common misunderstanding of how a life career emerges. The researcher who's done all this, Jeffrey Arnett, he breaks up the 20s into three stages. The first is launching, which we talked a little bit about. Then the middle one, which was, you know, it's sort of like if, if you go to college, when you get out of college into your late 20s, he called exploring. And he points out that you're going to have something like 3.1 romantic relationships in that time. You're going to have close to seven jobs, actually, in that time. But in every one of those engagements, you're going to learn something about who you are, about what turns you off, about what turns you on. It so often happens that someone takes that that beginning level, boring job, like you point out, I'm doing something, but it, it it doesn't intrigue me. But I do it really well. And then someone at the next level up retires and they pull me, you know, and and it's that kind of unpredictable path. So I often say to these kids, look, and this is an image I use in the book, it is not a highway into your future. It's a climbing wall. And on a climbing wall, you don't plot your course. You get one handhold and one foothold, and then you look for the next. (laughs) And you don't know what the second one is until you've established the first one. And then you take the next one. You move your foot, you move your hand. Then you figure out, where do I go from here? And that when you look at real people with satisfying careers, almost always that's the kind of path they describe.
0: And I think one of the big reasons why kids, are, you know, transitioners have that hard Times because when they're in high school, there's always these like steps you take. Like I do this, I take this AP class, and then I go this, and I do this. Once you reach adulthood, it's not like that anymore. So it's it's a big shock to finally realize, oh, it, things just aren't set out for me. There isn't a, a you know twelve-step program that I got to follow to become an adult. Exactly. I just got to get moving.
1: Exactly. Developmentalists have this concept that they call the life structure, and it's 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 uh, in your life or my life, it's what we do, where we go, the people, places, and things that we interact with on a regular basis, our primary relationships, our purposes, our obligations. Well, in high school, your life structure that is designed by the adult world. Even if you're the kid that cuts class, there's a place you're supposed to be, <laughs> and that's class. Even if you don't do any work, there's stuff you should be doing. So there is a there is a defined structure, a path forward. And and you can you know if you just can you know abide by it more or less, it will carry you forward, and you you will have opportunities available when you're 18 that you didn't have at 14. Now you graduate from high school, and it's open range. <laughs> you know do you, do you go to school? What about the armed services? You'd rather work. Well, what kind of a job? There's so many possibilities, and there's no one that can tell you. Look, this is this is the one that was made for you. You all of a sudden become the decision maker. And that's where that, that s- significant rise in the the kind of anxiety water table occurs when you move on from high school. You're now the, you're the architect.
0: And I, and I think the thing that helps a lot of young people is like them listening to adults who'd say, I felt the same way too, like this is normal. Because I think a lot of young people like think that there, there's something wrong with them if they feel like that. And the reality is, no, that's completely, you're supposed to feel like that and you'll be fine. That's
1: right. You're absolutely right. And that's when I get those kids, like, I really think there's something freakishly wrong with me because I don't know. I say, tell me about your aunts and uncles. You know, <laughs> give, me, give me a little, uh, the family tree. I say, okay, look, I want you to promise me you will call your uncle Harry tonight and ask him if he would be willing to tell you what it was like for him at age 20 would you sit down with your mom and dad and ask them i mean getting you're right if they can get that that realistic sense of perspective from adults and and often the you know dad doesn't want to say yeah i flunked out of college after a semester and a half because i was partying too much and then i worked for a year and then i went back to school and then i went on to get my mba and then I went on to start my corporate, you know, whatever. The kid has no idea that there were some significant stumbles early in the path. And I really think it helps kids. It, it humanizes the whole business of growing up when adults are willing to share that stuff with them.
0: So these are the three big tasks. And, you know, so a parent who's listening to this thinks, okay, this is great. Now I got to motivate my kid to do these things. But you're talking about the book, like, no, trying to, thinking that you can motivate your kid to do this stuff. Probably it's going to backfire on you.
1: well, it, it's very interesting, Brett. there there are if we really did a random sample of a hundred parents of of twenty two year olds, some of them use the old-fashioned methods, you know, get out of bed and go apply for a job. And with a certain percent of kids, they they, they, do, they move forward because they don't want their parents nagging at them. I went off to college and I signed up because I don't know, my dad would have been furious if I didn't. So there is a percentage of the population for whom the parents don't really have to do anything elegantly. But the kids who make their way into my office and who made their way into my book, those parents have tried all that stuff, and it not only doesn't work, it's just making the relationship more and more conflicted. And, and those parents really have to adopt a different perspective on motivation. They have to create necessity. There's a story I tell in the book that I think captures the entire uh, outlook on motivation. This was a a dad whose 19-year-old son was a a terrific kid by all description. He tried culinary school, just didn't like it, and now he was home. He wasn't a drug user. He was a nice kid. He had a girlfriend, and dad got him a car because he knew that without a car, he wasn't very likely going to be able to find work and then get himself back and forth to work. But this kid's effort at job search was really, <laughs> it was a sort of textbook. Yeah, I filled out an application yesterday, <laughs> right? One, one or two a week was enough. And the dad was after him and after him and after him. And i he, he came to me and said, what can I do to, to motivate him? And I said, does he have any bills? And the dad said, bills? He doesn't have any income. I, how could he have bills? I said, no, 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 it works the opposite the opposite way. And then the dad stopped and said, well, he sort of does. And that is, when I got him the car, it's a used car, we got it six months ago. And he we agreed to go halvesies. The payment was, I think, $600 a month. I'll i will pay $300, he'll pay $300. I said, how's that gone? He said, well, the first month, he gave me $150. Bucks. I haven't seen a penny since then. And I'm after him to do it, but he doesn't have any money. So I thought for a bit and I said, how's this? Is this paid up? This is the old, how's it set up? And it's the old uh, payment coupon kind of arrangement. You send your payment in with the coupon. And I said, why don't you try this next month? Next month, you give him the coupon book and a check for $300. He, He looked at me like, oh, it never occurred to him. And all we did was we took the, the dilemma, which is how are we going to pay for this car and keep it from being repossessed? The dilemma was on the dad's side of the boundary. It was it had become his business somehow. He wasn't willing to let the car become repossessed because, my God, he'll never get a job if I let that happen. Well, let's put that dilemma on the other side of the boundary. So now it becomes the kid's dilemma. How do I keep this car from being repossessed? And that's the the... In a nutshell, it's how do we create necessity that the kid will then respond to by by adjusting, by adapting, by creatively solving a problem. That's the 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 mystery of motivation is has to do with uh, the parent thinking how do I create that system of necessity. The most obvious thing is is going to your kid and saying, "Oh, here's your portion of the family cell phone bill." It has to be paid by such and such a time. Most kids are on their parents' plan. The parent, you know, it takes a simple <laughs> visit to the website and an uh, inactivate, click on the inactivate button for the service to be talked off. That kid will find a way for, to pay for that cell phone bill pronto because, of course, it's the center of his social life.
0: No, that, makes, that makes progress. That's creative adjustment is what what that's called.
1: That, yeah, that's the, the term for it is... Um, I'm I'm confronted with something that perplexes me. It's a challenge, but it's necessary. I can't just sidestep it. And I, I push myself to do or learn something I didn't know how to do before. I, I love the example of if you know how to change a flat tire, you, you experience creative adjustment because you, you didn't take the manual one day, go out into the garage and say, you know, I'm going to teach myself how to change a tire. I mean… A few people have done that. But most of us, we found ourselves at the side of a road like, oh, my God, now what? Get out the manual, (laughs) find out where the jack is, find out where the spare is. And, you know, half an hour later, you have a new skill, changing flat tires. That's creative adjustment.
0: And in all this, you know, as you're as a young adult making that transition, in adulthood, parents can still be there to support. But again, that the idea is you want them, the parents, to be more of a consultant instead of uh, an enabler. Like they they want that relationship to change from like when they had it with the twelve year old to compare they have with an eighteen year old.
1: Absolutely, I, I am a huge opponent to what's called tough love. I think if you've got a struggling twenty something, I I it if I'm the therapist of that struggling twenty something, I want him or her to have parents who are available, who are emotionally uh, empathetic, who are open to conversations. I don't want them bailing them out and paying all their bills and you know, keeping them on the family dole, but I want them to be available. You know, son, if I can help you, um, I've done a lot of job searches in my life. Uh, I know a lot about how that works. Just ask and I'd be happy to, to help you out. I'm not going to impose what I know on you but it's available. And I then, as a therapist, I try to get kids to see your parents not trying to control you. This is not, you don't have to prove your independence. Your parent is is a wealth of information and wisdom, and um, you got to tap into it. And if the parent is managing themselves as a consultant, the kid is much more likely to turn to them with that, with that significant question. Dad, how What what do I how should I approach a job? Do I wear a tie to a job interview? You know, simple questions that dad probably knows the answer to, and and you're the 19 or 20 or 21 year old may not.
0: And I think the thing that kind of keeps parents up at night is thinking about how much financial support they should give their kid when they're making this transition of adulthood. And it sounds like you know, if as long as your kid's making those moves towards adulthood, like they're going to school, they've got a job. You know, it's okay if a parent gives a bit of financial support because, as you said earlier, the economy is different now. It's hard to make that transition to adulthood with without a you know without a, a significant amount of income.
1: I completely agree with that, Brett. the the The, the phrase I use for that is I call it the forty nine percent rule. I am going to help my kid out up to forty nine percent of what it takes to get a life moving to get a life going. There is nothing. I mean, if, if you're sending your kid to college, there's chances that you are putting tremendous financial strain on yourself. If your kid is doing the work of college, taking the classes, getting the credits, moving toward a future, amen. God bless you. That's There's nothing wrong with that at all.
0: Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Well, I, I have a modest website, markmcconvillephd.com. It's got some information about the book, tells a little bit about me. It's got information on all the other things that I've published, if people are interested. And that would be my, and it also has links to, um, I've had an art, articles published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and it has links to those
0: two articles. Fantastic, with Mark McConville. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: It has certainly been a
0: pleasure for me. Thanks so much. My guest is Mark McConville. He is the author of the book, Failure to Launch. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, markmcconvillephd.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash launch where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much any topic you can think of. If you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. You can make money the hard way, becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.